Again, uh, the other thing I'm excited for is we're going to start a new series on the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts for a little while. And, um, and I'm really excited to, to preach on the book. Um, when I was an undergrad, it was my junior or senior year, and I was a history major, and by that point, you're getting to take interesting history courses. You know, I, I remember uh, a class on the Vietnam War that I took, and I took a lot of military history. Um, There's a lot of interesting classes. But I found myself one semester taking two classes, um, history of uh, environmental history, which was actually interesting, and also a history of Japan. This course, the history of Japan, I found it mind-numbingly boring. And it's not that I have any, anything necessarily against Japan as a, as a country, but the things that we studied in that course did not pertain to me in the least. I remember showing up to class, and I thought we might hear about, you know, the history of the government, the history of, you know, land development, the relations between China and Japan. Oh, I mean, you, you can imagine, you could make a short list of things you might hear about in such a class. But we heard about none of those things. What I heard about was sort of like the armor on a, on a, on a warrior and what the armor symbolized. I remember class after class, I don't even remember what they're called, but learning about the different colors that a woman would wear in her wardrobe and the way the colors would be staggered in a certain order with different colors here and here up her arm and the sleeve to communicate to those around her things about her emotions or things about what she was you know, feeling or wanting to do, and all this stuff. And I really, that class sticks out to me. Of all the classes I took in undergrad is one that I could have just, I wish I wouldn't have taken it at all because there was so little in it that connected to what I, who I felt I was, what I wanted to be learning, what I was interested in, what I was a part of. It was so foreign, so distant, so impersonal to anything that was close to my experience. And the reason that yeah, I tell you about that class is that I want to say right up front, as we look at the book of Acts, it is a historical book, but it's so much more than a history. What we read about when we read the book of Acts isn't anything like that class. Acts is the account of something that if you're a Christian, if you'd say, I'm a Christian today, it is the account of something that you are intimately connected to, both in subject and in mission. The men and women that we're going to read about should be precious to you. You should, you should love them. You should be inspired by them and feel united to them in faith because they gave their lives laying the groundwork for what we have today in the church, the organism, which is the church of Jesus Christ. They were the ones at the very beginning. They were the ones that were given the key, Peter, the one who was given the keys of the kingdom. We should feel very intimately connected with the people we're going to be reading about. Jesus says that the reason he came and died was to win not just a whole bunch of random people to himself, but to win his bride, to win the church. He laid his life down for the church. His bride is the church, and Acts is the story of how Jesus' church began, how the church started to grow, the character of the church, the commitments of the church, the source of the church's power. Acts is a historical account of our ancestors, maybe not biological ancestors, but ancestors 
of a family whose bonds run deeper than blood, a family that is forged together by water and spirit, like we heard about last week when Jesus told, uh, told Nicodemus, you have to be born again of water and spirit. A family that we've been brought into, not by our own bloodlines, but by Jesus' own bloodline, by his blood. So with that being said, I want us to stand together and I want us to open up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses of it together. This is the word of God. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Would you raise your hands with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you as we reflect on what Luke records, we thank you that Christ's sufferings were not the last word or the final blow. We thank you for Jesus Christ's work, his life, his laying down his life, his resurrection. We thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for the church, for your mission, for your spirit, which undergirds everything. We thank you that books are still being written, even now. And that one day those books, we, we ask that those books would be opened and the acts of, of your saints, our acts, our lives, will be revealed to your glory. May the work that we do and the lives that we live be written about in those books. Father, as I begin to preach on this book, I pray that you would work to change me so that I would speak your word and that it would be from a heart that is being changed and softened and renewed and strengthened to do your work week by week. And as I preach, I pray that we would hear from you and that your word would change our lives. Father, we admit and confess that while we wait for you here, while we await the consummation of your kingdom, we are often distracted and dispirited. Father, I pray that we would all pay attention to what your word wants to say to us this morning what it declares. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we pray this in the name of the living word, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by laying out a few observations about the book of Acts, its author, its purpose, and then I want to hit 
one point as the fundamental prerequisite for the entire book. We're going to talk a little bit about author and background, then we're going to hit one point. The author of this book is a doctor whose name is Luke. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He wasn't an apostle. He was a Christian who knew the apostles well. He traveled extensively with the apostle Paul. Throughout the book of Acts, he will say, we often referring to himself and the apostle Paul in his travels. Paul also in his, some of his writings um, attests to being with Luke. He wrote the longest two books in the New Testament, his gospel, the book of Luke, and Acts. In terms of word count, the writing of Luke makes up more than 25% of what the New Testament says to us. More than 25% of what God has given us in the New Testament comes through the authorship, the divine inspiration of this Dr. Luke. The first book he wrote was, as I said, the Gospel of Luke and then Acts. And these two books form a set. Both are written to the same person, a man named Theophilus. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he gives a little bit more uh, onboarding to what he's writing and why. It certainly applies to his work in this book, Acts, as well. But I want to read you just a few verses from the beginning of his Gospel of Luke. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, referring to what Jesus has, had been doing and had done, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting that I as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, that I would write you of it in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know, here's the why, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So what Luke is saying here, as we get into this book, this historical book, is that he has written something that is factual and historically accurate, that he has investigated everything from the beginning. So the things that he's going to say are not hearsay. They are from the source. They are primary source material. They are testimonies of what he and others had seen and experienced themselves. It seemed fitting for him to do this work, which was a lot of work, so that Theophilus and so that we might know the exact truth about the things that we have heard and been taught. This is the reason that Luke wrote these historical accounts, so that we might know the truth. This is what he says about the gospel account, but it certainly carries forward to that second book, the book of Acts, which you were looking at. What Acts provides for us is an account of what happens when Christians live in line with the truth that Jesus had taught. That's what it teaches. That's what it shows us. Pilate, one day, right before Jesus was crucified, famously asked Jesus, what is truth? Thankfully, Jesus had a lot to tell us about what the exact truth was. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He promises that as we look to him, we won't have to ask what is truth. We will know it, and we will be liberated by it. We will be freed by it. Acts is the account of the early church believing in the truth 
living in accordance with the truth, preaching the truth, and seeing, because of that, enormous power and freedom as a result. Bearing in mind that Luke wrote his gospel account so that Theophilus might know the exact truth about what he had heard, it's striking to realize that Luke's chief concern was that Theophilus knew all that Jesus began to do and teach. If you look at your Bibles, that's what he says in in the very first verse of Acts. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He wants, he wants Theophilus to know exactly what Jesus uh, began to do and teach. This means that knowing the truth goes beyond simply hearing what Jesus said. Think about that. Knowing the truth goes beyond just hearing what Jesus said with his lips, what he taught while he was in the synagogue or at the temple. In other words, Luke is saying that the sum of the gospel, because he's referring back to his work in Luke, okay, verse 1 is referring back to his prior writing, his account of all that Jesus taught and did. That account, the sum of that gospel, consists of two parts. Here they are, the doctrine, the teaching of Jesus Christ, and his acts, what he did. Jesus did not only bring the good news of God down as some golden-tongued order, He did not just bring declarations and messages from God, even messages that were specifically entrusted to him to declare, but he also performed all the things, everything that could be required of the Messiah. Every single thing he did. The gospel is all that Jesus taught and did. Certainly, Jesus' signs and wonders could be included in this. Last week, we we saw Nicodemus come to Jesus because of the things which he saw, those miraculous things, those supernatural things. But those are just the smallest aspects of what Jesus did. They're the smallest aspects of his acts. Jesus' acts are much greater and more magnificent than healings and miracles. In fact, the things that he did that were visible, he, he did out of love but he also did to strengthen our faith so that we might believe in the acts of his that were unseen. Do you understand that? His miracles, he did out of true love and compassion for the lost and the hurting and the needy. But he didn't just do those things just to heal people. He did it so that we might believe what he said about what he was going to do on the cross. The things that we only could see with eyes of faith. The gospel is all that Jesus did and taught. What are the other acts that are a part of the gospel beyond the signs and the wonders? He began his kingdom. He satisfied the wrath of God. He pacified God with his sacrifice. He purged our sins with his precious blood. He subdued death and the devil. He restored to us freedom, freedom from the bondage of sin. He purchased righteousness and life for us. These are some of the acts that Jesus did. Jesus taught the truth of God and never undercut his own authority by failing to live up to the things that he taught with absolute perfection. Remember that in the Gospels, there's often a distinction made between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. 
he taught as one having authority. I don't suppose that this simply means that he spoke with a really loud voice so that everyone could hear. He didn't just have a stronger voice, a more shrill voice that stuck out about the crowd from the Pharisees. That's not what it means when the Bible says he taught as one having authority. No, his authority in part came from speaking and living the truth. He was the truth. That's the source of his authority. Remember that it was Jesus who said the the people should listen to the Pharisees and obey what they said, but they should not act as the Pharisees did. In essence, the Pharisees said many things that were true, but they failed to act in accordance with them. Their lives didn't match the words that they spoke, but Jesus always did. The Gospel of Luke is all about what Jesus did and taught. Make no mistake, those who only have knowledge, those that can talk about God, but whose lives aren't transformed, do not understand the gospel. They don't understand the gospel. You must understand not just what Jesus said, but you have to understand and know what he did for you. There's nothing coincidental about Luke starting the book of Acts with a statement about Jesus' teaching and actions, the very first verse. This is intentional. It's the setup. It's the pathway. It's the straight and narrow for all that will follow after Jesus. We have to imitate what he did. We have to follow his example. We have to love his word, his teaching. Luke wrote this gospel so that we would know the truth about all that Jesus taught and did, And then he wrote Acts to show what happens when those who love Jesus begin to believe what he taught and follow after him. So that's a little bit about the author and the purpose. And with our remaining time, I I said I just want to make one point this morning. As we begin preaching on the book of Acts, there is one prerequisite truth that must be declared and embraced if we are to share the same faith and the same power, if we are to taste of the same spirit in our lives that the apostles will taste very, very soon into the book of Acts. There is one fundamental and essential truth that must be at the forefront of our minds and it must be tied with strong bonds to the love of our hearts. One truth. It is the fundamental truth that that fueled the life work of the apostles And it is the thought that comes first to the the author Luke when he sets out to write this sequel, the book of Acts. And it is this, all right? You listening? The one thing is that Jesus has overcome the world. That is the truth that is the prerequisite, that is the foundational, the thing that undergirds the the foundation for the rest of what we're going to look at throughout this book. Jesus has overcome the world. Verse 3 says... To these, speaking of the disciples, he also presented himself alive. Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. This is foundational. Jesus was not, you know, I took a history class. And like I said, I, it was a, I think it was in my Vietnam class. I learned about the, the Buddhist monks that committed self-emulation, that laid down their lives and gave them up really in protest against the Chinese government. 
Jesus wasn't like those monks who, who, you know, basically sacrificed themselves in protest. Jesus didn't lay down his life for a good cause without the ability or the authority to take it back up again. Jesus himself said, for this reason, my father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me. Judas didn't take it from him. Pilate didn't take it from him. The Pharisees didn't take it from him. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Luke testifies that Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings just as it was documented in his gospel. That he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried. And that this suffering, this is the suffering that that Luke talks about in verse 3. He presented himself alive after his sufferings. And then on the third day, he rose again. How do we know? Well, Luke testifies that he appeared to his followers and presented himself alive. This isn't a dream or a, or a mirage. Luke makes sure to spell out quite clearly what Jesus did. He says, by many convincing proofs, he appeared over a period of 40 days. What were these proofs that he referenced? Well, we'd have to go back and read the Gospels. But some of them were, you know, he appeared to some of his disciples as they were traveling along a road to Emmaus. He sat and prayed with them before a meal. He showed himself to his disciples. He, he, he appeared, as we heard last week in, in my dad's sermon, that he appeared to, to Peter and Andrew as they were fishing and then made breakfast for them out on the beach. He did many things over a long period. You know, one of my sons is into magic, um, magic tricks, sleight of hand. And so if any of your kids have ever been in a phase like that, you recognize like you're the test dummy for all their tricks. And so they really enjoy uh, getting out their cards and doing tricks for me, doing sleight of hand for me. And one of the things that, you know, they'll do to me as their parent, but they won't do to other people is show a trick a second time. You know, like that's the rule. You don't ever show a trick twice. And why don't they show a trick twice? Because the more you show a trick, the more chances you have of seeing, you know, how they're, how they're managing to make that card disappear. The more times they show it, the more chances you have to see that actually there's like a, you know, there's something on the bottom of the coin and it's, or it's magnetic, right? So they only show it once. That's like a rule of a magician. Only show a trick once. Jesus didn't just show himself once. This is no trick. This is no magic. This is no sleight of hand. Forty days, Jesus was with his people, eating, teaching, speaking with, ministering to, encouraging, speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. Forty days. This is different than somebody that thinks that they saw him pass by them in the market, never to be seen again. Jesus was with them for weeks. He traveled around and appeared to many, teaching, eating, conversing. Okay. It's not hard to fool someone for a very brief period, a moment. But it is hard to fool someone for 40 days. Without resurrection, there would be no book of Acts. Do you recognize that? Without Jesus' resurrection, nothing in this book would have taken place. It wouldn't have been written. Everything Jesus taught and did hinged on the fact of the resurrection. You know, there was a a trial 
And there was a long, drawn-out prosecution. And over the, over the, the trial, they brought forward a number of uh, expert witnesses to the stand and were interviewed. But one of them, the one that the, that the prosecution was banking on, um, by the time it got to their time to testify, the person that was going to take the stand died. And you know what happened? The convict, the man that was arrested, got away scot-free because the whole trial was based on evidence that was hinged on that one person. Everything that Jesus didn't taught, everything about the church today that you've experienced hinged on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. He didn't, if he didn't rise from the dead, then he did not have the power that he claimed. If he didn't rise from the dead, then he was a liar. He wasn't honest. And therefore, he sinned. And therefore, he was not the spotless lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. In other words, if he didn't rise from the dead, then all of Christianity, everything you've given yourself to, is a waste of your time. It's a sham. It doesn't matter. If he didn't defeat death, then he did not overcome the world. Everything from the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus Christ, is blown to smithereens. It's all worthless if he didn't rise. Everything hinges on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Who gives their life to propping up a fraud? His disciples wouldn't have been willing to undergo the turmoil and the suffering, and, and many of them, the death in the end, for a message that was a fake they had nothing to gain. Even the Apostle Paul says that if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. There is no hope for you. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, the people that have died before you, have perished as well. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's what Paul says about the resurrection. If it didn't happen... You are the most pitiable soul. You're wasting your time. But then he says, but we now know, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Because of this fact, we rest assured that Jesus has overcome the world. Again, the central truth, the fundamental prerequisite truth that guides us through the book of Acts. This is the truth upon which our lives are built, our work is conducted, the church is established and protected. That is the truth, that Jesus has overcome the world. Everything flows out of this truth. So Luke begins by reminding us of Christ's glorious victory in overcoming the world. In John's gospel, there are a few chapters given to the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was betrayed and as they were all gathered together in the upper room for the Last Supper. He said many things to them that night, but there were a couple of central things that pertain to him comforting them, his disciples, and assuring them that he would overcome the world, assuring them of his victory. One of the things he said was, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare, I go, he's telling them he's going to leave them, to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Their leader, the guy who called them, 
and who's been with them for the last three years, day and night, is predicting here his betrayal and his separation from them. But not just the separation of death, not just the separation of the grave, no, but what he speaks to, the separation he speaks to here is his voluntary return to the Father to prepare a place for them so that and, and, and so he starts by comforting them, by reassuring them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And the late, later in that same conversation, he says this, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you, my disciples, to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that, okay, reason given again, so that, in me, you might have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The truth of Jesus' claim here is verified by his resurrection. Think about the state that Jesus left his disciples in when he went to the cross. He had already foretold them that they'd be scattered, they didn't believe what he said. He told Peter that he was going to deny him, and Peter said, no, I won't. I won't ever deny you. Just hours, hours later, at the cross, many people were there. Many people were watching. Most of them were cheering and shouting, enjoying the spectacle. The religious leaders were happy with themselves, thinking that they had won against this guy who had been such a pain in the rear for years now. Jesus' mother Mary was there with some other women. Jesus' brother James was there. They were mourning as they watched he whom they loved suffer and die. Where were the disciples? They were noticeably absent. Though Jesus had spoken of his death to them, they were unprepared for the reality of it. The fear of the Jews had driven them to abandon their Savior at his most, most pivotal hour. No resurrection would have left them feeling guilty, disillusioned, fearful, and probably really screwed up in the head. But Jesus presented himself alive. After his sufferings, Jesus presented himself. Christ has been raised from the dead. They were all clustered together after Jesus died. They were hiding out in a room because they were so afraid of the Jews. The disciples were, were acting as cowards, and Jesus appeared to them alive and said, peace to you, peace to you. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. Peace to you. As we study Acts, everything we'll read about flows from the life-changing fact that Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings. This is the reality that caused his disciples to go from hiding in that upper room, afraid to leave because of fear of the Jews, to preaching Jesus' name in the temple and being taken by the Jewish leaders, thrown into prison, then beaten, and then released and being told, don't preach in his name again. And what do they do? They go right back to it. What changed with Jesus' resurrection? The resurrection is what caused the apostle Paul to believe in Jesus Christ in the first place. He was persecuting the church. He was trying to put it down. He was a religious Jew who saw the church as enemies of, of God. 
And then he was on the road one day, and he saw a blinding vision, and he said, who is it, Lord? What's happening? And what was the response? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus presented himself very much alive to the apostle Paul. After coming to faith, it was the hope of the resurrection that caused Paul to endure all the hardships we're going to read about in the future chapters. It was the resurrection that caused him to rejoice that he was counted worthy to suffer after the manner of Christ, that he, he shared in Christ's sufferings. The fact of the resurrection changes these men. And I, I want you to really wrestle with the question this morning, has the fact of the resurre- re- resurrection changed your life? Has Jesus' resurrection changed you? Jesus has overcome the world. That's how Luke decides to start this book. Jesus has overcome the world. His disciples don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid either. Because Jesus is who he claimed that he was and did what he said he would do. We don't need to be in fear, live in fear, or in shame, or in hiding. Like the disciples, we serve a risen king. And therefore, we don't have to nurture our our fears. We don't have to hold on to them. We are to cast our fears, our worries, our helplessness upon Christ and trust him with all those things. As we think about the glory of the mission that God has set before us and the things that he calls us to do, I want to remind you that the things that will ruin and wreck you, Jesus has already dealt with and he has been victorious over. And it's not by your power or might, but it's by his spirit that has been given to you. And so we follow in the train, we follow after these men and women of Acts in Christ's victory, and it is such a wonderful and glorious thing. Fear of failure, fear of losing, fear of oppression is often what keeps us back from the way that we ought to live. It keeps us from living in the way that the Christians in Acts lived. And though you may be fearful of losing, there is no losing for the child of God because Christ has won. He has finished the work that he set out to do, and if you are in him, then you share in his victory. You are a partaker in his triumph, and Jesus calls you to carry out a mission that will be, yes, trying, difficult, and yet you have great hope because you will not be overcome. Jesus has overcome the world. And therefore, the gates of hell will not prevail against his bride, the church. Therefore, we have peace. We are to take heart. We are to rejoice. We are to not let our hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Of course, believing in Jesus, as we said at the beginning, doesn't just mean that we believe he existed. It means believing that he was who he said he was, and that he did what he said he would do. He was resurrected on the third day from the grave. This is what the men and women throughout the book of Acts knew. This is the fundamental truth that enabled them not to succumb to their fears, to temptations, but to live with joyful boldness to the glory of God and to the salvation of the world. Does the fact that Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings stir your soul? Does it make you glad? Do you draw confidence and courage from that fact? A number of years ago, I was talking to a a friend who had some doubts about the Bible. 
And after talking with him for a little while, I told him that you, you don't have a problem with these things. You have a, a problem with the resurrection. Your problem really is with the resurrection. If we believe in the resurrection, everything else flows from that easily. The resurrection is the most audacious, crazy fact in the Bible. If it's true, then everything else is true. If it's true, if you believe that it happened, everything flows easily from that. If we believe that Jesus could make his dead body rise from the dead, then he can transform our dead bodies too. That he can take our dead works and make them glorious and powerful by his spirit. The resurrection changes everything. Earlier I said that the the glory of Jesus' gospel is what he taught and did. Don't forget that. The gospel is what Jesus taught and did. Believing in his resurrection means that we must also live in line, live in line with the fact of it. We must live in line with the truth of the resurrection. Does your life point to a risen Christ? The people of Acts did, their lives did. That was their glory and strength, Jesus' resurrection. There was no trial, sadness, hardship, temptation, faction, dispute. We're going to read about all these things. But none of those things could overcome them because Jesus had overcome the world. The kingdom of God went forth with power as it goes forth with power today because Jesus has overcome the world. And so as we start out and we get into this book together, I pray that each and every single one of us would be convinced in our minds and in our heart with our thoughts and with our actions that Jesus is Lord, that on the third day he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and will one day come to judge the living and the dead, that he is overcome and that we say amen to that and run into the future with gladness in his strength. Let's pray.